Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputy head teachers living on opposite sides of the country. Hi Steve, how are you? Hello Russell, very well thank you. I think um, we've been riding a bit of a crest of a wave recently with our successful podcast of the week with Jazz and uh, has quite productive at work today getting Covid ready. Oh, fantastic. Mm. It has been a really nice week or so for the podcast with lots of people listening and supporting. So thank you for that. Now, just over a year ago, we had a podcast guest, Claire Seeley, who came on to speak to us about all things curriculum, particularly looking at what we meant by a knowledge rich curriculum. And as Claire explains in that episode, she was a head teacher who, because of Twitter mainly, fell into blogging and eventually running conferences on the topic of curriculum. I attended one of those and it was some of the best training I have been on. And we're pleased to say that we've got Claire back today. So a warm welcome back to you, Claire. Yeah, welcome. Good to see you again. Thank you for being here. Now, we wanted to get Claire back for a couple of reasons. First of all, we knew she'd been working away at editing a new book about curriculum. And we were curious as to how her thinking had evolved over the years since we talked. But we were also keen to have Claire on again, but in conversation with another great mind from education. So I asked Claire who she'd enjoy a chat with, and she was very, very quick to identify Daisy Christodoulou, which made me very happy because that was exactly who I wanted to talk to you next. So uh, Daisy, a very warm welcome to you. Great. Cheers, guys. Yeah, looking forward to this. Great. So, uh, Daisy, we really admire the work you do in the field of education. We've really enjoyed your new book, Teachers versus Tech. But could you perhaps give us a little bit of background about your career and how it led to you kind of becoming an author? Yeah, sure. So I started out life as a secondary English teacher, um, then worked for uh, uh, ARC schools, uh, Academy Chain, uh, as head of assessment. Um, and I now work for No More Marking. Uh, no More Marking, we're a provider of online comparative judgment assessments and we work with both primaries and secondaries in England and internationally. And comparative judgment is a, a new way of assessing extended writing and it involves technology. It, you know, it involves uh, doing your judgments on a screen and there's an algorithm which combines all of the teacher judgments into a measurement scale. So it's really dependent on technology. And so the, re it's, the reason I, I, I wrote my new book, Teachers vs. Tech, is because I just was getting more and more interested in the amazing things you can do with technology and education. But I was also, I think, more and more frustrated that so many of the ways technology is used in education isn't really exploiting all the potential it's got. And, and there's a real history of big ed tech disasters, uh, of government spending really large sums of money on ed tech projects that, that don't really work out. And I just thought that was so disappointing, given all the amazing things you can do with technology. So the thing I like to say is my book is not about, it's not pro-ed tech, it's not anti-ed tech. It's just trying to look at what does work in ed tech. Lovely. And I really do like that balance you strike as you explore um, the theme of tech in the book. It's great. So Steve, over to you. Yeah, Claire, I'll come to you if I may. Um, the book you've edited is called The Research Ed Guide to the Curriculum, an evidence-informed guide for teachers. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about how the book has come about, um, what it's about, and perhaps some background information on Research Ed for those who may not have heard of it, please. Okay, so Research Ed is an organisation, it's a grassroots organisation, so it's, it's run by teachers, uh, or people who used to be teachers, and mainly on a voluntary basis. So we get asked, various of us uh, people get asked or can apply to speak at research ed conferences. And they've been 
they happen all over the UK and in different parts of the world too. So, I mean, I've spoken at ones all over, all over England, um, in Cardiff, in Wales, in, I was going to go to one in Sweden, but that got cancelled. I was going to go to one in Shanghai, but that got cancelled too um, because of COVID. So generally, normally, there's in normal times when we haven't got a pandemic going on, um, there are these conferences always on a Saturday, always the speakers aren't, don't charge for them. So it's very reasonable. The idea is it's, it's a development for teachers that doesn't break the bank. You maybe pay uh, 20 quid to go um, to cover the catering costs and a bit of the cost, the operational costs. And then you get a chance to hear you know, five or six speakers throughout the day that you choose. There's usually about five or six different people you can, you can choose from for each slot. So it's really, really, really good. So alongside that, as, as the sort of research ed movement has grown and grown, uh, they decided to put out some books, some guides on various areas, the sort of thing that are often talked about at research ed conferences. So, for example, earlier this year, around about September time, I think it was, uh, research ed guide to explicit instruction came out. And there was also a research ed guide to teaching literacy. So those are both, both already out and they're both fabulous. Um, oh, there was another one about uh, educational myths that also came out. I've written a chapter in that one. Um, and then now the one on the curriculum, I was asked to edit that one. And there's also one on leadership coming out anytime soon. I'm not exactly sure when, but very soon. So Tom Bennett, who's sort of the person who works full time for um, Research Ed, he approached me and said, uh, would you edit the one on the curriculum? Because that's my thing. That's the thing I talk about, as you know. So I said, oh, yes, please. And then I approached people that I knew that I thought would had some interesting things to say, which, of course, is in itself a bit like a curriculum because you have to choose who to include and who to leave out. And there are lots of people that were really good that I could have chosen, but, you know, the book could only be so long. Thank you, Claire. And um, one thing that's extremely clear in both books, actually, is the importance of knowledge. Um, and I know that when I trained as a teacher, actually, there wasn't much value in that. And uh, with the 21st century skills, like problem solving was the main one. And uh, it's, it seems to have been very important. Um, can you both reflect on why the just Google it approach uh, to knowledge is damaging to the curriculum and the education overall? And maybe if we come to you first, Daisy, actually, that'd be a good idea. Yeah, sure. So why you can't just google it i write about this i have a chapter in my first book and i have a chapter on it in teachers versus tech as well and the main reason you can't google it is because the way our minds work so we have working memory which is a bit like consciousness and your working memory is where everything you're kind of thinking about everything that's going on in your mind is happening in working memory and working memory is really limited it's limited to maybe four to seven new items of information at any one time and you can test that by kind of printing out a list of random numbers and trying to remember as many of them as you can in, in five seconds. It's really hard to get more than five or seven to remember more than that. So working memory is really, really limited. And, but long-term memory, by contrast, long-term memory is the store of everything we have uh, in, in our minds. That is vast. It's much, much bigger. And so the mistake people make when they think about just Googling it is they think, oh, well, Google just operates as this kind of like outsourced long-term memory. And actually, no, you need all that long-term memory in, you know, in your head. <laughs> uh, and you need it because your working memory is so tiny, it's really easily overwhelmed. 
And the, the only way you can't expand working memory, the only way you can kind of cheat its limitations is to get stuff in long-term memory and use that. Um, and so that's why it, it's really hard to remember a string of, of, of random digits, but it's often much easier to remember lots of letters if those letters are organized into words and those words are organized into sentences that you know, because then you're not relying on your short-term working memory, you're relying on your long-term memory. And so another example, the, the, imagine, imagine reading a book where you don't know every other word. Sure, you can go and look up what that word means on Google. You go look up in a dictionary. But how pleasant a reading experience are you going to have? Mm. And not, not only is your, uh, how, how pleasant will that experience be, but how much meaning will you get from it? Mm. And think about, you were talking about, uh, Steve, all of the higher order thinking skills and problem solving that people were really interested mm. in. How much problem solving are you going to be able to do if your working memory is totally occupied all the time with just looking, looking it up? Because the looking it up imposes a load on working memory. So any kind of problem solving you want to do, you are relying on those, that body of knowledge in long-term memory. Just as any kind of reading you want to do, you're relying on knowing what the words mean. And things that take up that precious, precious space in working memory overwhelm it and make it harder for you to do the higher order meaning and problem solving and reading between the lines. So I think interestingly, mm. when it comes to what we want to do when we teach reading, we want students not just to kind of read what's there, but to make inferences and go beyond what's there and think about the intentions of the author. And again, how much harder is it to do that if your working memory is being occupied with the, the more basic aspects of, of reading, just working out what the words mean. So that's why we have to have knowledge in long-term memory. You cannot outsource it to, to the cloud. Mm -hmm. Daisy, we'll come back to, to you on the topic of Google in a moment because there's a bit in your book about Google themselves that I quite like to talk about. But Claire, was there anything you wanted to reflect on there? Yeah, I mean, adding on to that, I mean, absolutely, Daisy's quite right there. But I think it's also people don't understand that um, knowledge changes us when we know stuff. It changes what we can see. Mm. So, like, if you just know what trees are, that's one thing. But if you know that's an elm, that's an oak, that's a birch, instead of just seeing trees, you, it's changed you. you. You understand in a more subtle way. If you, if you just know rock, that's not as subtle, not as nuanced, not as interesting, not as powerful as knowing, oh, that's granite, that's limestone, that's sandstone, um, that's chalk. And if you, if you just know about shopping, that's nowhere near as powerful of going, ah, I know about shopping, but I also know about profit, I know about loss, and I know about consumption and production externalities. Then, then you're really cooking on gas. Then you can really, you know, problem solve and, and know powerful things. So and knowledge, I mean, to say knowledge is power, that's a slogan, but it's really true. And it, it has this, it changes, it literally changes what we can imagine. It changes what we're interested in. And it's, it's, it changes what we can think. Yeah, and the idea that knowledge doesn't have sort of very much value seems to have sort of permeated not only education, but wider culture. And, and mm -hmm. Daisy, coming back to the Google thing in your book, you, you talk about some of the educational programs, don't you, that have been developed by some of these big tech companies. And I loved the section on Google when you were talking about um, generic skills like searching the web and uh, the drawbacks of, of, of not actually having knowledge, even when it comes to doing something like that. Tell us a bit about that chapter, because I really enjoyed that. Yeah, so <clears throat> I write a bit about, it's obviously quite convenient as well for Google, and I think not just Google, but a lot of, a lot of tech firms 
to buy into this, you can just Google it idea. Um, and I think that's what they do. And I think that not just Google, but a few others. And I look at uh, some of the other big tech companies, what their education programs are like. And they are really buying into this idea that you don't have to worry too much about the content because it's all just out there. And so when you look at the kinds of lessons they're recommending, they're lessons that are very light on content. They're not structuring content particularly. They're not really thinking about it that much. Um, so Google's own lessons themselves, I give some examples of those. And, and Google's own teacher development program says there's no need for students to learn facts anymore. And I also look at a big uh, technology edtech program that's, that's been sponsored by the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Um, and that's Summit, Summit Education. And that's something where, again, there's not actually much content in the platform. It's more about students being encouraged to go off and research and look on the internet and see what's out there. And the thing I say is that this would be a problem even if you had print sources, if you relied on print reference sources. But what makes it more of a problem with online reference sources is that what we're also starting to learn is that the internet is not neutral. And so the most interesting research on this has come from, from YouTube, which is what does YouTube's algorithm, how does it guide you? So if you search, say you're set a project in, in school, go and research, research the globe, research how the globe uh, and the, how, the, how, the, how the, the world and the, the earth and the sun and the moon will interact. If you go onto YouTube and search for that, there is a whole wealth of flat earth videos on YouTube. And there's also a lot of research that's been done on YouTube's algorithms progressively encouraging more extreme, more sensationalist videos. So if you're student, sending students off to do some research on some sort of basic, basic things in science, there is a really good chance they're gonna, they could end up going down a rabbit hole of conspiracy theories. Um, now, and there's really interesting research that the re there's been a resurgence in flat earth beliefs. And there's really interesting academic research sh showing that YouTube is linked to this and YouTube's algorithms are linked to this. So the idea that you can just look it up using any reference source is problematic, but it's particularly problematic when you're being encouraged to look it up using reference sources that are designed not to encourage truth or to encourage honest seeking, but to encourage sensationalism. Uh, that is what a lot of the internet is doing. So I think that is a problem and we have to grapple with that. So just taking that a bit further you give the example don't you of a, a particular lesson where or, or sort of series of um, guidelines that Google provide in their lesson on searching the web um, yeah. and, and I think you give the example of how having some prior knowledge is still vital for being able to yeah. check those kind of criteria off I think something to do with an octopus in a tree comes to mind <laughs> yeah absolutely so the other sort of slight paradox here is that I think as adults, we all recognize that we ourselves use Google and use search engines and use them quite effectively. And those of us who remember life before the internet, remember that it was a pain and the internet and Google's and search engines were, were really great. But I think then the mistake we make is that, oh, you can just teach searching the internet as a generic skill. And that's what Google encouraged. They have like a checklist of good, safe, uh, safe uh, searching, good advice for searching, but all their advice is quite generic. So it's all things like, well, you need to evaluate the source and you need to look and see if the source is reliable. And, um, you know, yeah, it, it's, all, it's, all, it's, all, it's all very generic. And so the really interesting research project was done on this is a quite famous research project about the Pacific Northwest tree octopus, which is a famous hoax website. 
And a study was done that got students to evaluate this hoax website. And they evaluated it using a checklist that's quite similar to a lot of the Google ones. So they're saying, oh, you know, what's the authority here? And, and, it, and, and it's got copyright. Uh, it's got some, you know, made up university name mm. that, that is to an adult obviously absurd. But the children will see it and go, oh, it's, it's created by a university, tick. Um, and, you know, it's got references, it's got sources, tick, but all the sources are nonsense. So it, that's just a really good research paper showing that you can have these abstract generic tick lists and they're just easily gamed. Mm. And, it's, and they, they don't really help you. And the thing that would really help the students to see it as a hoax is to just know, you know what, there's no such thing as the Pacific Northwest tree octopus. <laughs> Octopuses don't live in trees. <laughs> and if you knew that, that's the clue, that's the tell, yeah. you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, those kind of generic uh, skills, I think to adults they appeal to us because we feel like uh, that's what we do. But what we don't realise is we are relying on a body of knowledge that is so well internalised we sometimes don't realise we have it. Yeah, and I, one, of the, the, one of the examples I like to give is, for example, in Key Stage uh, 1 in many schools in England and in, and in Guernsey, uh, we learn about, children learn about the fire of London. And one of the things you learn as you learn about the fire of London is you learn why did it spread and you learn, oh, it spread because the houses were made of flammable materials and they were really close together and there was a, a source the bakers the baker and it had been very hot and very dry okay and you can say well well they could just google that to find that out but the point is if you know that what else do you know you never know when you might need to know that and you might be studying um favelas and you might go oh there's lots of fires in favelas i wonder why i wonder why that's a dangerous thing why why is there fires do you know why well do you know why they're because they're very close together and they're made of flammable material and you know what there's not a developed fire brigade in the same and it's the same it's the same reason so then you might be looking at grenfell uh, you know the awful tragedy and thinking i wonder why um that happened it's like guess what they're very close together vertically and flammable cladding and the, there was a fire brigade but it couldn't get up that high so from something and nobody when they did the fire brigade thought the fire of london thought i know i'm going to teach this so that they will then be able to analyze mm. fires in favelas and Grenfell tower but that sort of knowledge and making those links enables things we can't foresee what it will enable mm. but that sort of knowledge is there in the background for when we need it mm. so yeah that's what that's why we need knowledge it's it's basically raw material of thinking that's a great yeah, example absolutely. and if i just chime in there what, what clay is talking about is when you're building that knowledge and you're putting it all together you, you're developing these schemas so you, you've got to stop thinking of it as just isolated facts mm -hmm. the more and more you get of them they build up these richer webs of connections and then what you're doing is you're making those links and those leaps as claire's saying you're making leaps across time leaps across subjects but that can only happen as your schema is getting richer and, and better developed. And that's all going on in long-term memory. Brilliant. So taking that idea of knowledge a little further, both books um, seem to touch upon the idea that not all knowledge is equal in its value, perhaps. Um, this seems to be one of the biggest headaches as well for any of us that are responsible for curriculum design in terms of thinking about what knowledge and why. Could you each perhaps reflect on that idea of whether certain knowledge is more important or powerful is often mentioned um, than other knowledge and, and why? When, when uh, you start talking about this, sometimes people go, yeah, but whose knowledge? Like slap that down, like in your face, your argument is done. 
And it's like, no, that's a really good question. Excellent. It's the most important question. If you're going to do knowledge, you absolutely need to think hard about whose knowledge and how do we know uh, why this knowledge, not this knowledge, and how does knowledge earn its stripes? And I think that that's where the idea of disciplinary knowledge comes in. And disciplinary knowledge means how did this piece of knowledge earn its stripes to have the status of knowledge? And what's, um, you know, why does it get into the curriculum? So why do we now have, I have to get it the right way around, we have the heliocentric model of the universe, not the geocentric, that is the right way around, I've got that the right way around, haven't I? So now we don't believe that the Earth is the centre of the universe. We now you know, know that Earth rotates around the sun. Um, but how? But before, you know, hundreds of years ago, we wouldn't have known that because a certain kind of knowledge was rendered obsolete. So that was no longer held to be true. But there's rules within science of how that happens. It's not, I can't just say, well, I don't believe that. I think Mars is the centre of the universe, thank you. I can't do that. I have to make a claim and you know, there's all there's a scientific process to do that. There's peer review, et cetera, et cetera. And so teaching children over time about what the rules of the game are for each subject is called teaching them disciplinary knowledge. Now, we don't start in reception with the whole shebang. We work up over time. But what's really important, and I think is sometimes misunderstood and not realised, is that the rules of the game for different subjects are different. Mm. So, for example, in science, you can't make stuff up. Mm. In history, you can't make stuff up, but in a different way. And it's less, you know, you don't have experimental evidence in history. You have um, historians arguing about things. But if you're doing creative writing, do you know what? You must make stuff up. But we need to teach kids that. that in this subject, it's important to be original, obviously leaning on other things and being inspired by other, by pre what's gone before. But in this subject, you really mustn't make it up. And that seems obvious to us as adults, but it's not obvious to children. So that's disciplinary knowledge. And the people who are sort of at the heart of that are either people in universities, so scientists in universities, research communities, or uh, historians in universities, or for something like the arts, it's practitioner communities. So those are the people that are sort of our lodestar that, that check in and they argue among themselves. So not everything is settled, but we need to make sure children know that. Not everything is settled yet, but these are the people we look to to find out what is what is most likely to be true and what, what isn't. Thank you. Daisy? Yeah, if I come in on that, like Claire, I also feel yeah that, that question, whose knowledge, does frustrate me slightly. <laughs> um, and I'd say I have a couple of responses to it. So the first response to the whose knowledge question is, um, it is a very good question. Claire is right. And it is one we must ask. But I think I sometimes feel it's being asked to close the conversation, not to open it up. Mm -hmm. People don't really want a genuine answer to it. The other thing I'd say is, is that whose knowledge is not a reason to not teach knowledge because <laughs> there is no way of teaching without teaching knowledge. Because if you accept what I've been saying about the long-term memory, the working memory, you actually, it's really difficult to empty out the knowledge from a subject. And what I always say is if, if we in schools don't make those hard decisions, and they are hard decisions in lots of cases, but what I always say is if we in schools don't make those hard decisions, the, 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 the consequence is not that our children will get this incredible skills-rich curriculum where they'll be able to weigh up competing opinions and decide what's true. 
the consequence is that that vacuum of knowledge will be filled by people who are often far less scrupulous than education professionals. And when I'm talking about that, I mainly mean advertisers yeah. and the media. That's what's going to fill the, the, fill the vacuum. So you're absolutely right to say whose knowledge. That's a really important question. But remember, there has to be some knowledge. You cannot escape that question. So anyone who puts forward a, a, a case for saying we should teach this knowledge, you can't therefore just critique it by saying this is wrong. You have to critique it by offering an alternative. Because if you don't, again, you're just opening it up to people who are not going to put forward their agendas and not going to put forward their reasons and whose reasons will often, as I say, not be that scrupulous. So that's the first thing I'd say to the who's knowledge. The second thing I'd say is that whilst there are some genuinely heated and important debates about, you know, particularly in history and literature, about the canon, I would also say that you can settle quite a lot of the debates, not all of them, but a lot of them in a way that's more pragmatic. So Dan Willingham talks about this in his book, Why Don't Students Like School? And he says from the pragmatic cognitive scientist point of view as to whose knowledge, we should think about the knowledge that will be most useful. And you can do this in relatively empirical ways in that you can say to yourself, well, do we want students to be able to, when they leave school, read a newspaper? And that feels to me, and we can, maybe we disagree on that, but that feels to me like something that most people do generally agree on. And what we therefore know is that in order to be able to read a newspaper, what kind of knowledge do you need to know to be able to fill in the gaps of what the writers of broadsheet newspapers take for granted? And what Willingham shows and other people have done with empirical studies is show that it's a lot of, for newspapers in particular, it's, it's a lot of what you might call quite traditional historical and geographical knowledge. It's about knowing when events have happened and, and, and where events happen. So you can do it in an empirical way like that as well. But we can't escape the value question. I wouldn't want to short circuit that. It is important. And I don't think we should answer everything in terms of pragmatics. I think there is more than that. So then I think there is an interesting discussion about, about value and about what we value as a society and what we think is important. And that there may be content that is not necessarily, uh, you know, going to earn you money in the future, uh, that is not necessarily going to improve your financial standing. But we would think it's important to know. Um, and we should have those discussions. And again, particularly when it comes to things like probably literature and the canon and why are we teaching this book? And why, why, why not teach that book? We should have those discussions. But I think, as I say at the start, we should have those discussions honestly and not in the spirit of trying to nitpick around your canon doesn't include this, but in the spirit of laying out alternatives and having you know, discussions about the alternatives and accepting there is no, there is no way of short-circuiting this entirely we have to engage in the debate. Mm, I really like that mm. reflection. And it also, I kind of made the connection between what you were saying and what Claire was saying then about disciplines as well, in that if I take a subject like history as a discipline, part of the disciplinary knowledge is knowing this is uh, a kind of a body of knowledge that is evolving based on new evidence that comes about. Um, so actually, when you're talking about the value of what knowledge, that, that's an evolving kind of process. But I'd only know that if I was taught to think like a historian. Claire, any other reflections on that point? Uh, uh, one of the, as Daisy was talking, uh, you know, we're, uh, we're recording this in, in COVID-19 is big. And the thing about uh, knowledge in newspapers, you know, um, we hear all the time, flatten the curve, flatten the curve. And it really <laughs> makes me think, I bet there's loads of people out there who absolutely have no idea what, what this flattening the curve means. You know, when I do it, when I hear it, I, you know, think normal distribution curves and so on and so forth, exponential curves and all that sort of stuff. And I, I have that in my, in my, in my, um, 
in my so it's not a normal distribution but see i'm getting it wrong myself it's about exponential curves and so on and so forth but i have that in my brain and i could draw on that and it makes sort of sense to mm. me not obviously as much as it would to some people but you need to understand that you need to have some sort of mathematical uh, knowledge going on there and you know I would have when I was 14 I'd have probably been one of those going oh miss why do we have to learn this it's really boring <laughs> why do we have to learn about exponential doodahs or whatever it was but actually comes back comes back and actually it is really useful to know about that stuff I, I remember um something infuriates me it was on twitter was somebody critiquing their education going you know they taught me about mitochondria but they didn't teach me about tax well i'm sure they did teach you about taxation in history but no they didn't specifically go and this is a p60 and this is a p40 <laughs> how one how boring is that two actually that is the sort of thing you can google um, but actually, why would you not want to know about your your body and cells and how that food gets made into energy? I mean, that's just that's just interesting. Why would you want to limit what you know in that way? Uh, you know, it takes me back to you know, is it? I always get 1984 and Brave New World muddled up. I think it's Brave New World. Daisy English teacher will have to correct me. But in, is it in Brave New World <laughs> where they they have the epsilons and the deltas and the alphas and betas and the children that are, are raised in bats? And, you know, from conception, you know, if you're an alpha, you're going to be really brainy and have the top jobs. And if you're an epsilon, you're, you're being groomed from, from early to the, <laughs> the hard, horrible jobs. And you don't need to think. I mean, is that, is that what we want? Oh, it's a bit extreme, I know. I'm using an extreme example. But, you know, all of our children have the right to learn as much as possible. And yes, as mm. they get to 16, they become much more specialized. But we need to hold off on that specialization for as long as possible to give them the, the breadth of what they can. And not everything will light everybody's fire. I mean, I, I never really got on with romantic poetry personally, but I'm not going to ban it from the curriculum because I didn't like it particularly. It never floated my boat. It's important that it was there. Yeah, I totally agree with that with Claire. And I'll just chip in really quickly because that point you made about exponential graphs is a really interesting one because I just read a, an article the other day about if graphs are presented in a, as a linear or a, log, a, log, a log, logarithmic scale, that has a big difference on the way people interpret them. And I was only thinking about that myself the only other day because I was doing a presentation on space repetition. And I was wondering about whether I was going to portray the forgetting curve, which is the rate which we forget information, as a linear scale or a logarithmic scale. And, 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 and actually what you realise is there are lots of these basically secondary school maths concepts that just come up again and again and again in so many different areas and they are really practical. So, you know, not only is it about forgetting the curve, which is the thing that we're all talking about at the minute, not only is it about knowing how you remember and forget things, but knowing about exponents is how you learn about compound interest. And I think with the great Albert Einstein, maybe it isn't Albert Einstein, all these quotations are attributed to Albert Einstein, but there's a great quotation by someone who says, those who don't understand compound interest are, are doomed to pay it. So you think just this one concept of exponents just has so many different applications and it is something that's in mm. secondary school maths and those things might seem really abstract, but they have so many real world applications that are relevant for everybody and that help you, you know, help you understand things like public health crises. So yeah, there is a case for this powerful knowledge for these things that really do have application in so many different ways. But it's also, even if they never do, even if I never need to know about mitochondria ever again, mm -hmm. it's interesting and my life is richer for knowing about them. 
It's probably even richer for knowing about the romantic poets, although I would pretend to <laughs> even. <laughs> Can I get you both to sit my 16-year-old and tell her this? Because that would be really handy. <laughs> um, as the conversation progresses, it's actually going to be thinking about how we actually learn. Um, if we imagine that people are actually convinced that knowledge is vital in becoming learners who can do things we want them to do, like solving problems, thinking creatively, um, how do you each see that we best acquire new knowledge? And I know, Daisy, um, that issue is at the heart of your book, and uh, you seem to suggest there's some pretty fundamental misunderstandings in our education system about how we learn. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think there are some, some, some misunderstandings about, about how we learn and how, how, we, how we acquire knowledge. And I also think just practically there's, there's, there's simple things we could do that we could change, that we could help with that. And one of them is what I was, I was just referring to, which is about space repetition. And space repetition kind of sounds a bit odd, but it's this idea that when you learn something once, however much you think you understand it, if you've only done it once, it's unlikely that it's really kind of sunk in. And so the example I always give is, Maths teachers often talk about this, but you've got a class, you teach them simultaneous equations, they get it. At the end of the lesson, they've got it cold and you're so pleased and you're happy. And they come back three days later and they've forgotten what a simultaneous equation ever existed. <laughs> and the same in any subject. I've been doing it with, with, with Shakespeare plays that you've got the plot and you've understood it and great, you've got the character names and they come back, it's all gone. And you think, Where, how did that happen? And I think that's often a thing that puts people off teaching knowledge. Because people often say to me, instance, will say, look, I buy your point about the importance of knowledge, but how? I am trying here and it is just leaking away. And the fact is that is true. And, and the, one of the things I was talking about with the, the logarithmic curves earlier is that, 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 that knowledge does fall away really quickly unless you do something to reinforce it. And so I, I certainly think one of the issues I think with, certainly I think when I train to teach, I think it's changed a bit now, is that I think when I trained to teach, there really was a bit of a cult of the outstanding lesson which was this idea that you teach one amazing lesson on simultaneous equations and it's great and there's bells and there's whistles and you're doing amazing things. And, and you know what? There are genuinely amazing things going on in that lesson. But that's it. It's that one lesson. And actually everything we know about learning is however brilliant that one lesson is and however amazing your examples and your activities and, and, and your explanations, it's one lesson. And everything we know about learning for the long term is it has to be over the long term. So that's why I'm really interested in things like space repetition, which are ways of spacing out practice and organising a curriculum and interleaving activities so that it makes it easier to remember them. Um, so that's something I think there's, there's real mileage there and where technology can really help as well. Fantastic. Claire, did you have any reflections on that point? Yeah, there's, uh, that made me laugh when I talk about simultaneous equations. As, uh, like my, my kids are adult now, but they're only young adults. So like, remembering when they were doing... GCSE maths and they're going mom I don't understand simultaneous equations and not having done them myself for, I don't know 30 years or something and having to go I, I used to know this once but what the research would say is if you've learned it quite well and obviously I mean I got my GCSE maths so I, at one point I did really understand it um, not just for one lesson but you know for a, a period of time if you if you've learned something well even if you know 30 years later you have to come back and relearn it so I'd go on I think it was my maths watching videos to try and teach my kids who didn't understand their homework 
it does all come back. It is in there. It's like in the attic, hidden away in a cupboard, you know, under a dust sheet. But it's not like starting completely from scratch. It's in there. And it, it came rushing back. It's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I get this, I get this. And then, you know, I taught my kids, which I'm sure they thought was fantastic. Not. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, I did manage to help them. And, and that happened throughout their time doing GCSE and even even sometimes less so um, when I was trying to help them with A-level. But yeah, so it is in there. It is in there. It just might be a little bit lost. Yeah, and you gave a lovely, um, used a lovely phrase on your conference last year, Claire, around them. Um, your knowledge is very good at playing hide and seek with you. And I really like that, particularly with our younger children. Uh, what I'm hearing and what you're both saying there is actually we could just be a bit more um, okay with the way our minds work and the way memory works we'll find a way forward. I think this frustration that Daisy described of, oh, why don't they get it is really normal. But actually when we understand that the process of forgetting is really normal and, and you cite Ebbinghaus in your book and in uh, some recent training you did, Daisy, actually it's the forgetting curve. It happens. So let's work with it. Let's understand it. And I really like that because then it's not a, such a frustrating game we're trying to play. It's, it, it's having, you know, knowledge is power for us there again. Daisy, in your book, you, um, you talk a bit about constructivist thinking. And I wanted to pick up on that because there'll probably be quite a lot of teachers new to the profession um, listening. And in some recent applications I've read, they, they quite often, if they're asked about research or whatever, they'll talk about constructivist theories. Uh, but you talk a bit about how um, you refer to Richard Mayer's phrase, don't you? The constructivist teaching fallacy. And I really like that about how some of our teaching approaches are not constructivist. They kind of, they look like they are, but they're not. Can you say a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think this term constructivism, it is one that causes a lot of, a lot of issues. And so I think what is true is that we do need our learners to construct meaning. So learning is not a passive process. It is an active process. And our students have to construct meanings in long-term memory, if you like. And um, it's not about you just, it isn't that you just pour the content in. It absolutely isn't. And that's why I talked about schema, that you have to, the new information you're teaching students, you have to link to old information. And you're constantly needing to get, into, uh, to get feedback from them on whether they understand and, and to, 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 guide, to guide them and to, to see that they're, they're getting that right conception. So learning is interactive and students do need to construct meaning. All those things are, too, are true. The problem then is when you talk about, and Maya talks about this, this problem of these constructivist sort of teaching approaches, there are a lot of, uh, I think, approaches which assume that the only way you can get students to construct meaning is to let them discover it. And that's not true. So students do need to construct meaning, but you can guide them to that. And you can often guide them quite heavily to that. <laughs> and if you don't guide them, if you just let them discover it and think that's what constructivism means, it means discovery. The problem is they can then discover and construct all kinds of wrong meanings or, or nothing at all even. Um, so I think the fact is, yeah, we do need our students to construct meaning, but that doesn't mean that they have to discover it all for themselves. And there is a lot of evidence on the problems with discovery learning. Um, lots to do with the fact that you can get misconceptions, that you can spend lots of time, uh, you know, wasting time really on, on looking at things that, are, you know, concentrating on things that are not the thing you want to learn. So yes, students construct meaning, but that doesn't mean they discover it for themselves. 
Thank you. I just thought that was a really good point in the book, and I think it would, I, I would have liked to have heard that at the start of my career and really understood that and questioned that idea because we were led to, well, certainly when, when, when I trained, led to feel that there was this kind of superior um, nature to lessons like you described, the project-based, the inquiry-based, um, and it's good to kind of debunk that a little bit and question that. Um, Steve, I think we're taking it on to technology now. Yeah, I was, well, think about the technology in itself. Um, would you each say that something about technology and how you've enjoyed using it in your careers and um, how you found it effective then? Because there's so much out there, but how effective has it been in your own careers? And I'm thinking, Claire, if I come to you first, actually. I'm just going to go back on what Daisy was just saying about the discovery bit, which which does overlap with technology, just because it's making mm. me laugh because... Um, <laughs> Like uh, where I work, they had this rollout that we were all going to be taught how to use Teams, you know, the interactive mm. studio stuff. But it hadn't quite happened by the time COVID happened. So we had to discovery <laughs> learn our way to negotiate. And it's been a nightmare. I mean, we got there in the end, but I keep on thinking, only I'd have had some training on this. It would have been so much better, mm. you know? So like, sometimes mm -hmm. it's just really frustrating. Yeah. Um, that said, now that we sort of know how to work it, there is great scope for that. And I do think that we'll do homework differently as a result of the whole distance learning thing. That will be better. Um, in terms of technology, my own use at Twitter has been really useful for me. To be honest, in the classroom, it, you know, it's been good to teach children you know, how to use Word, how to, I mean, you know, my background's primary, so how to use all those basic programs. And what we found, actually, was there was a time before iPads when children knew how to do all of that and everything we were teaching them was a bit redundant because they already knew. And then iPads came along. And then mm. nowadays, children don't actually know how to use a mouse because they just are on pads all the time. They don't know loads of stuff. So it's funny how that, that, that's gone back. Um, I'm gonna, I, I, the thing that I really like, I'm actually going to talk about um, Daisy's comparative judgment here, um, which has been fantastic. So at the school where I used to be head teacher, we've used that as a way of assessing writing, which uses, so what children, just to explain it, quickly uh, there's a task that all the say year fours who are signed into the project have to do at a certain time so it might be I'm trying to think of one now oh it might be a picture of a castle and you have to write a descriptive piece about the castle story about a castle whatever uh, with minimal input so a little tiny tiny five minute warm-up but not heavily scaffolded off you go and write it that gets scanned in um, which is quite straightforward sent off to Daisy's company no more marking then comes the judging yeah. so then uh, a couple of weeks later you have a staff meeting and you get fed your pieces it's, it's a bit like tinder for writing so you get you get two pieces of writing side by side and you go yep i like that one better i like this one better you know, click right kick left or whatever and you, you go through rapidly so all the staff are doing that separately uh, crucially, most of what you see will be the work that's been done by your students. Won't have their names on it in a primary school, in a small primary school. You can usually tell who it is, but it doesn't have that. But 20% will be from other schools, but you never judge your school against somebody else's school. You just have another school against another school. Anyway, so you do all of that for about an hour. And that will get packaged off, off it goes down the internet. And then that's when the clever uh, algorithm comes in. And then it ranks not just 
to work in your school, but across all the people in the project to the very best one, right the way down to the one that's least fit. And that's really, really useful because then you can reference how your school is doing with how other schools are doing. And so if you think, oh, I think that class is writing is really good, it's quite good to ground yourself and go, yeah, it's okay. It's about the same as other year fours. You know, it's about average. Or no, actually, we are really good. Look, we're in the top 10%. Or like, oh, whoops, I thought you're quite good. And actually, we're a bit below average. So it's not the be all and end all of everything to do with marking ever and ever and ever. But in terms, um, in terms of getting a sense of where your school is compared with other schools, I think it's really, really useful. And much, much better than the horrid terrible writing sats that we used to do back in the day mm. which was not good you're probably yeah. too young to remember I, <laughs> no i do remember it but i remember <laughs> i absolutely love comparative judgment i'm going to give it a massive plug now because my school has been using it for um no more marking for uh, i don't know five or six months we kind of came in halfway through the year which terrified me slightly and then i realized that's fine and what i like about it is as well as the national um tasks that you can do you can do you can run it for your own internal um tasks so we've done that we've kind of set up a program where um every year group will have kind of a piece three times a year but one of those will be the national task and that has worked beautifully and the biggest benefit for me god well there's so many but the, the workload for teachers has been reduced massively because they're not wasting hours on tick sheets that they now well let's face it we know we're a fairly unreliable one because of the workload you end up compromising the quality of your judgment on those tick sheets um and i also really like that i've got year one teachers looking at year six writing and i've got year six mm -hmm. teachers looking at year one writing that's it's really been powerful a, yeah it's been a really beautiful part of it and that's a great example where technology is genuinely adding something that the human touch can't and i know at the end of your book um daisy that's where you kind of you're looking at this balance and how the kind of humanness and the the com computer element or sorry the tech element kind of complements each other but bringing steve's question to you daisy just a couple of things there so kind of the benefits for you and your interest in tech because something must have drawn you to want to talk about tech and how you found that in your career but like you said earlier you this wasn't a book about tech being a good or bad it's about we're going to make better use of it if we really understand one how learning works and what tech can offer that the human touch may become absolutely yeah and you guys have both done a really good job of explaining comparative judgment and, and if i say the thing that kind of drew me to comparative judgment it is a principle that i think works well for any use of technology which is what is the problem you're trying to solve and i think you guys have expressed a lot of the problems that comparative judgment is trying to solve the problem of unreliable tick sheets the problem of a lot of time being taken uh, the problem of maybe only one teacher ever seeing the writing. So comparative judgment is addressing uh, a lot of the problems that we faced with assessing writing. And what drew me to it is I was working, I was head of assessment at ARC schools, a group of primaries and secondaries. And the problem I kept running into was this problem of assessing writing. <laughs> it was taking over my life. <laughs> and so comparative judgment, I was got interested in it, not because it was technology, but because it was solving a problem. And I think that's the thing to keep in mind. What's the problem you're trying to solve? What's the thing that you think this, I just keep butting my head against this. I just keep, this is a very frustrating thing that we keep seeing as, a, as a, an obstacle. And, and then to think, well, what are the potential solutions for that? And then can technology help with them? So as I say, I think for me in my life, comparative judgment has been a, a really good example of that. But I would say also space repetition, the one that I come up against again, 
what's the problem we bite our heads up against all the time children forgetting uh, not just children forgetting adults forgetting as you say it's natural it's not that it's not about people being stupid or, or or not working hard enough it's natural to forget so what is the way we can solve this space repetition a way and technology can help you implement space repetition far more effectively so when you look at it about solving the problem I think it also helps you steer you away maybe from some of these ed tech disasters we've had in the past, which are often about, not about the problem, but about a shiny piece of kit. And I think that's often where the problems creep in, where you go, oh my God, there's this amazing new technology and I just, we just need to find a way to make it, make it happen. <laughs> but actually what problem is it solving? So for me, that's the key question. Mm. And that is the premise of the book. And it's just, yeah, it's really beautifully explored. Steve, I'll, uh, I'll head uh, back over to you towards the end. Yeah, just to bring it all to a close, really, um, if I may, um, we wonder if you could reflect on this final point. If you were back at the start of your careers, what do you wish you really understood and why? And what would you say to NQTs ready to embark on their careers now? I think if I'd have known about working memory and long-term memory, then I would have known it's really important to model your thinking and stop asking questions too early in the learning process mm. so i remember really early on i thought this was great i was talking about I was year four teaching about light and i was like hey who can tell me about where we use mirrors in periscopes in transport i can think of two and i they haven't got a clue <laughs> and i was thinking about buses you know they have that periscope in a bus and the, the, well this is before video cameras showing my age but they used to have a periscope so they could see if you were mocking about on the top yeah. and, 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 and submarines like they had no idea what a complete waste of time like if i'd have gone i'm going to tell you something really interesting like you know i think we'd made a periscope and how it bounced the light or whatever. And like, do you know, there's two places where they use that. That, da, 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 da. that they would have learned something. But just, you know, I might as well have asked them, I don't know, to, hey, can you say this poem in Sanskrit? <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, it was pointless. So I wish I just, you know, with the best of intentions, asking children questions they cannot possibly know the answer to. Or maybe, you know, if Daisy was in the class, if she'd have been in my class. <laughs> <laughs> given our age gap she's gone I know I know and she didn't know <laughs> I went to school up the road from where Claire so she could have been oh, wow. I, could, I could well have taught her yeah so uh, you know she might have known I know it's a periscope can be used the bus and the submarine and probably the other things that have but everyone else is just thinking oh Daisy's I mean even if they're not thinking it consciously they're just thinking Daisy's clever and I'm stupid which is you know not a good thing or so yeah it's fine to tell students stuff. Doesn't mean you should never ask questions, but don't do the guess what's in my head. Hey, who could tell me this before you've taught them? Just don't do that. Mm, don't yeah, do that yeah, absolutely. And Daisy? That, that is so funny from Claire. <laughs> and it totally resonates with me, guess what's in my head. I mean, I definitely fell into that trap. And I think at the root of the guess what's in my head problem is this fact that we have this feeling that they've got to discover it for themselves. And if I tell them it's mm -hmm. wrong, uh, and actually, the kind of paradox about that is, as Claire said, is that it just ends up that kids who don't know anything feel stupid, and kids whose parents have told them stuff feel like they're really smart. Mm. Um, so you're just, you know, you're not, you're not helping anyone. <laughs> mm. um, 
So I, I definitely think the guesswork's in my head. That would have been a good thing to have, have known a bit more about. Uh, but I would say again, I, I'm probably just going to reiterate what Claire said. For me, it's the working memory, long-term memory. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I'd known more about that. And again, the book, and this is not original and a lot of people said, but the book I wish I, I'd, I'd been able to read before I started teaching, and it wasn't published when I started teaching, is um, Dan Willingham, Why Don't Students Like School? Mm-hmm. I think that would have just been really yep, helpful. absolutely. Just having yeah. it in your head. Working memory, long-term memory, this is how it works, this is how kids think, this is why they do some of these baffling things, these are the baffling things you're going to encounter, that, that, those kind of things I think would have been great. So, so yeah, that was what I'd like to have known. I've seen teachers get so cross with kids, so frustrated, where they, but we only did this three days ago and you knew it, how dare you, you're not trying, and it's like, no, no, this is normal, this is completely normal. Yeah. And so just knowing it's normal for them to not remember anything, but it is mm-hmm. in there, don't worry, it's just hiding. Yeah, or they've been or they've been told they need to growth mindset their way out, you know, thinking <laughs> more positively. Yeah. And I'm sitting there watching a lesson thinking, No, she she just doesn't know it. Stop telling her to be more positive. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, it's like telling me to be more positive about cooking. I'm not gonna suddenly yeah. be able to make a lasagna. <laughs> I really am not. Yeah. I'm gonna growth mindset my way into understanding teams well I'll have a go but you know oh brilliant well it's been an absolute delight to have an hour of your time Mm. so thank you both for uh being here and they are two well we've had a sneak peek at the one you've edited Claire when is that coming out uh this Friday the 29th of uh May amazing so this podcast is going out on that sort of weekend following that so um order that Amazon, I imagine, um, and Daisy's book's already we, out. And Amazon and other publishers are available. <laughs> Sorry, I should have said that. So, so really look forward to that. And we've had a sneak peek mm. at that, and it, it is made up of some fantastic contributions from lots of different people from the profession. So, it's a really um, good and interesting read. And what uh, there's a nice little bit near the beginning of it, Claire, that sort of says how you might want to read this book depending on what you're interested in. So yeah. you can sort of dip mm. in and out at different sections. So that's yeah, really it's not a linear book. It's a non-fiction. But it doesn't have to be read. To, you don't have to read all of them in sequence. Uh, you know, so there are some people will want will think, oh, curriculum. That's Ofsted want to know. I want to find out how. And it's not a how-to manual, but there are some case studies that people mm. might find useful. But they're not all that. Some of it is very theory, disciplinary knowledge. Ruth Walker was brilliantly about that. Mm. Um, some of it's about like Christine Council talking about if you're a if you're a senior leader in a secondary school, how do you hold your your head of history or your head of art to account for their curriculum? It's like if you you know you're a physics teacher, really. So yeah, lots of lots of different ways of reading the book. Yeah, and there's something mm. for everyone in there. So thank yeah. you. That's a really good read. And Daisy, like I say, we've read your book, and it is just a, I just want to say to everyone, it's an extremely easy read, even though it's really embedded in sort of research. Um, it, it flows beautifully. I love the premise, and I just think it's full of some really good points. So I'd recommend it to anybody. Thank just you both. That's an amazing, amazing hour. Don't keep the deputy.